0: Hi there, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you again. I am a bit encouraged this morning. This is the 28th of February, 1st of March tomorrow and winter is about to get kicked out the door. Spring is on its way and following that, summer. And we've got news about potential of lockdown being lifted. So I'm optimistic about the months that are to come and really looking forward to the summer. But I want to talk to you about a, a different kind of summer this, uh, this morning. I want to um, speak about a summer that happened a good number of years ago and you can probably guess the year when I start to describe this to you. This particular summer was fairly ordinary although there was a heat wave in July and temperatures were up to around about 32 degrees and it was during this time, on the 28th of June, that something happened that maybe people in Britain had read in the paper and perhaps hadn't paid too much attention to. But on the 28th of June, an Austro-Hungarian Archduke was assassinated by a Serbian-backed terrorist. Okay, what did this mean? Well, when I mention that his name is Franz Ferdinand, then some of you will already have jumped. the year 1914 and other bits of news began to filter through to the people through the media after Franz Ferdinand was assassinated because this had a a domino effect and by the end of July Austria-Hungary had declared war on Serbia. Okay, what did this mean? Well, suddenly the balance of power in Europe was disturbed and Russia came to the support of Serbia and within four days Germany declared war on Russia and on France another two days later and then took it to themselves to march through Belgium towards France alerting Britain to the danger of Germany dominating Europe And so it was on the following day, on the 4th of August in 1914, that Britain was drawn into the conflict. That's something they chose to do. So all in the space of five weeks, the world was at war. And we can read in the history books of all the atrocities that followed. How quickly peace can turn to conflict. And our Bible reading this morning is an example of this. And the reading is from Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through to 15. I'll read it to you. I have it on my screen behind me. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed because Gibeon was an important city, one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia king of Lashish and Dabia king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lashish and Eglon joined forces. They moved up all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise, and the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth-horon and cut them down all the way from Azekah to Makedah. And as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail and were killed by the swords of the Israelites. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Stand still over Gibeon. And you moon over the valley of Aijalan Ejelan. So the sun stopped and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. If you have been following the preaching series about Joshua and are familiar with the story so far, you will know that the Gibeonites were a crafty lot. We meet them in the previous uh, previous chapter, and uh, they were a local tribe, and they were terrified of Israel. They'd seen what Israel could do against their enemies, and so they thought they would come up with a little plan, and they decided they would dress up in old clothes and bring old wrinkled wineskins and moldy food and pretend that they'd come from a far-off land and wanted to make a peace treaty with Israel and make an oath with them, which which they they couldn't break. And this is exactly what happened. Israel were conned into making this peace treaty and uh, binding themselves by oath to, in a sense, look after the Gibeonites. And so we join the story here. We learn that the other kings had learned about what Gibeon had done. And they were afraid not only of Israel, but also of Gibeon because the Gibeonites too were very formidable fighters. And so here's the outcome in the story. Five kings form this alliance against Gibeon and they attack it. And in turn, Gibeon cry out to Israel and say, please help us. We're in the desperate situation. And bound by their oath, Gibeon, uh, uh, Israel are immediately drawn into the conflict and battle commences. You can see the similarities between how Britain was drawn into the the conflict in 1914 and how Israel was drawn into this. Now I'm pretty certain that Israel didn't want to be drawn into this conflict and war any more than Britain did in World War I. Wars, sadly, are inevitable. Jesus even prophesied it in Matthew 24 and verse 6. Jesus is recorded as saying, You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And the history books record a constant succession of war after war, of battles between clans and tribes and kingdoms and nations in Scotland and in England and in Europe and in Asia, in every continent of the world. In recent decades, and can go back as far as the Vietnam War, but since then there's been conflicts in the Balkans, Rwanda, Chechnya, Iraq, Syria, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, Darfur, Israel, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, Myanmar, South and North Korea and the Crimea battles. Fortunately, the conflicts we've seen in the USA have fallen short of civil war, but it is worrying to see how peoples can be divided against one another and it can lead to such violence that we read of in history. And 1400 BC, the time of Joshua, was no different. Israel existed in a time of conflict and war was commonplace and inevitable. Tribal groups considered their wars against other tribal groups and kingdoms as holy wars. Israel was not entirely distinctive in this. Every tribe, every kingdom had its own deity, the false gods, and their wars were in, in honour of their gods. And In that, that sense they saw them as holy wars. Israel was distinctive in that Israel worshipped the one true God and their battles against other people were only holy wars when God had instructed them to fight. Now, as Christians, when we look at this history and read it through with a 21st century pacifist mindset, which many of us have, it causes many of us a problem. How can, how could a just and holy and loving God order Israel to do what they did in battle? It's clear from the Hebrew Scriptures that Israel understood the call to war to be the Lord's instructions to them, right down to the last detail. I suppose if we were born into their race at their time in 1400 BC with their mindset and their world view in a world of kill or be killed then perhaps we would like, be, be more likely to see it their way but this that kind of sermon this, this kind of sermon on, on the just war and everything else and holy war is really for a, another day it's another sermon I'm sticking with the passage here The point is here that Israel was tricked into making a peace treaty with the Gibeonites and consequently they were drawn into conflict as an obligation. They didn't choose this particular battle. But I would say reflect on Joshua chapter 10. Go through this passage and look at it. And if I were to ask you what the main truth is in this passage... But I'm going to tell you what I see to be the main truth in this passage. And it's this. The Lord fought for his people and gave them the victory. God was on their side. didn't matter what their enemies threw at them. God was going to ensure that they had the victory. And as New Testament believers, we have strong faith in God. That he is on our side. In the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in, we can read examples of this in Paul's writings, including his description of how we are to put on the whole armour of God, and that the weapons of our warfare are prayer and faith with which we can bring down spiritual powers and break strongholds of Satan. We see Paul's faith at work. If you read through the Acts of the Apostles, he confronts Simon the sorcerer and the magician Bar Jesus. And a slave girl with a spirit of divination, by the power of God he rebukes evil. Paul writes, God is for us, who can be against us? Are you experiencing conflict at the moment? You didn't ask for it, it crept up on you. You didn't expect it, but circumstances brought it to you. And when your thoughts turn to conflict, your insides turn to jelly. It's a horrible feeling. Your inner peace is disturbed as your stomach turns to knots. I don't like conflict. And I, don't, I can't understand anybody who relishes it. But I certainly do not. And Many people do. I can't imagine it, many people do. And this might ex- describe exactly how you feel at the moment. And if it doesn't, it's worthwhile taking a mental note. Because it's likely that sometime in the future you will experience conflict. It can be with the family, in the workplace, and it can be in the church too. you do well to remember that in spiritual conflict and in spiritual warfare, when you are seeking to honour the Lord, the Lord is on your side and he will fight for you and give you the victory. Let's return to the story. Now there's one part of this story that may puzzle you, and in particular is verses twelve to fourteen. Let's look at those again. It's on the, the day that on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Stand sta-, sorry, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of ijalon So the sun stood still and the moon stopped. So the nation avenged itself of its enemies, as it is written in the book of Joshua. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. It's a very interesting passage, this. Because many of us will go straight to the science of all of this and say, how did that happen? Uh, How did the universe stop the voice of a person? Read the various commentaries on this and you'll find various views expressed, different interpretations depending on the viewpoint of both the facts and the truth that are in this passage. In addition to the miracle of the hailstones, these giant hailstones that fall down upon their enemies and not upon Israel is the account of the sun and the moon standing still for a day. What does this mean? It's worthwhile noting, first of all, that here is a quotation from a poem found in the non-canonical book of Joshua, And it's quoted by the writer of Joshua and used in a similar way as to the way in which Paul quotes from a different poem in his address to the people in Athens when he preaches to the people in Athens about an unknown God. He quotes from a poem by Epimenides uh, to, to Zeus and that quotation is this, Paul writes, in him we live and move and have our being. Um, and he says it's from your, in, from your poems it's uh, part of, of your writings in him we live and move and have our being to illustrate a truth about the Lord now it doesn't mean that the poem by Epimenides was inspired by God it was not but the way in which Paul applies the truth that is contained in those words is in him we live and move and have our being and the truth that is encompassed in the, um, in the poem to, uh, that is uh, mentioned here in, in Joshua chapter 10 is that God intervened for the people. Now the word translated motionless can mean to be silent and some of the commentators um, refer, will prefer the meaning of this that the sun was not shining when it says to be silent perhaps due to the hailstorm or perhaps due to a solar eclipse while others take the, the, uh, take this literally that the Lord who made heaven and earth is able to cause the solar system to pause as he did on that day. Now I want to say this is the wrong question. Whenever we're looking at a passage of scripture we've got to ask the right question. This is the wrong question. The Bible story is not about how the Lord caused the sun and the moon to stand still. Here is an illustration of how the Lord fought for Israel and how they prevailed. And it could be said that the Lord moved heaven and earth to give them victory. As an aside, which of these, if any of them, do I believe to be the most convincing explanation of the sun and the moon standing still? If I do have a preferred view, I'm not going to say what it is. And I have a reason for doing this. My reason is this, that all too often we as Christians who love the Lord can set ourselves up as judge and jury of other Christians and their viewpoints. And if they differ from our own viewpoints or interpretations on some of the details of Scripture, we can be unkind in our condemnation of others. I've seen this too often, and I find it very upsetting. All too readily, we can classify one another as being theologically liberal, or fundamentalist, or obscurantist, or reformed, or charismatic, and we say such we give we classify or pigeonhole one another in such a way as is demeaning of one another this ought not to be amongst brothers and sisters family the family of god who love the lord where there is conflict among christians and conflict within churches to that degree christians and churches spend their energy fighting one another And conflict can lead to disputes and factions in churches because one group wants to dominate the other. And it's not really about theology, it's about power. And there's a lot of sanctification still needs to go on within the lives of people within our churches today. Christians ought instead to celebrate what they have in common in Christ. And focus on what unites them. And serve together. Doing spiritual warfare against the enemy, the devil. And make the good news of Jesus known to others. Let's remember also that all scripture is inspired by God. And this includes Joshua chapter 10. Its inspiration reminds us of the greatness of God and how God can and does stand powerfully with his people in battle, fighting for them and giving them the victory. And the central point, let me remind you of it again, is that the victory was due to the power of God and not to the power of Joshua. And this inspires faith in us, reminding us that it is The Lord who fights for us and who is on our side. When we seek to advance the kingdom of God on earth in holistic ways. Or when conflict comes to us from our enemy. God is still with us. God is by our side and will enable us to overcome. We live in New Testament times as Christians. Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. He carried no sword with which to fight against the Romans. Whatever conflicts we face, our God is able to fight for us and enable us to overcome. We began this morning with a reminder that conflict can catch us by surprise and very quickly overwhelm us. If you're experiencing conflict at this time, God's word to you today is a reminder that as you stand against spiritual enemies you do so with the Lord at your side at your right hand and with the weapons of your warfare the prayer of faith you too can overcome and be victorious as the Lord fights for you but as we close let's remember the greatest of all victories that Christ has won for us on the cross. Christ defeated our enemy, the devil, and won a battle for us that we could never have won by ourselves. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.